to OT Uncorked, the podcast for wine-loving OTs. I'm your host, Miranda Rennie. On OT Uncorked, we uncork hot topics in occupational therapy and a bottle of wine with experts in the field. If you like OT Uncorked and want more great OT content, check out otpodcasts.com where you'll find some of the most popular OT podcasts. In this episode, we're throwing the wine cork out the window and enjoying local beer instead. Be sure to listen to part one of the interview to hear about what we drank and what we recommend. In this two-part interview, I chat with Rob Ferguson, an occupational therapist in the University of Michigan Health System, whose practice involves the use of therapeutic technologies to help clients reach their occupational goals. In this episode, which is part two of the interview, Rob and I continue our conversation about the role of virtual reality and technology for therapeutic use and talk about opportunities for mentorship and professional development in this area. He also shares some examples from his own practice to demonstrate just how effective of a tool therapeutic technology can be. talking about the opportunity of bringing tech savvy newer therapists with um, clinically you know people with in, more in-depth um, level of clinical reasoning bring them together is, is is that particular mentorship can have two types I mean one a, a seasoned clinician and maybe really helping a younger clinician develop those clinical reasoning skills while at the same time a brand new therapist can bring so much to that by going, let me teach you how to use the technology and you can kind of, you and I can figure out how to make this work better. You teach something, I'll teach something. And then for a new clinician, that's very empowering to be able to go, I have something to add to this relationship. I'm not just here to either be spoon fed or to be a sponge and take everything in, but I have something to contribute. And, and that's a very different kind of, of, of learning than that they got when they were in school. Another thing that, not to go down a rabbit trail, but... I love rabbit trails. Yeah, let's go for it then. Um, something else I've learned is I'm talking to other clinicians who have been maybe out of school for 15 years, right? That's not very long. And they're saying that in their programs, when they were in school, there wasn't really an emphasis on evidence-based practice, or it was kind of starting to become a topic, but many of their professors weren't really teaching reflective of the, of the modern evidence of what's being talked about in the field, kind of what's the up and coming research. And that's been really cool for me, especially as a, as a new clinician and to see around me that, that interchange is not just about technology, but it's about how we're approaching occupation, like you said before, and how we're approaching it with this idea. There's so much rich evidence out there talking about how people are engaging in occupations, what interventions are going to support participation and performance. And so we can bring that that level of clinical thinking and clinical judgment to that conversation as well and saying, hey, I actually know where to go to find out what's evidence-based and and I can help us figure out if what we're doing is really in line with the literature and in line with, what, with what's being shown to work elsewhere. And so this idea that young clinicians have, yeah, the tech savviness and some of the experience with integrating evidence into practice, these are really cool ways to, I, I'm like designing a mentorship program in my head already. I'm there. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, uh, then, uh, if if you'll allow me, I'll, I'll I'll try to give you a little bit of um, 
something to think about in relation to that. So um, when you're looking at the evidence, my, my cautionary tale is that the way that you're taught to think at school is to be able to pass and to graduate, <laughs> right? The, the, the educational approach is very linear. So when you're looking at the evidence and you're doing a treatment plan, it's a very linear process. All right, what's the diagnosis? What is your evaluation? What are your tools? What are the results of those? Let's plan an intervention. What do you expect? What are the outcomes? Right. If I do A and B, I'll get C. It's very linear. So you're also, well, not you, but rubrics were not a thing when I went to school <laughs> and rubrics are everywhere. And what does a rubric tell you? If I do this, I get the A. Very formulaic. Yeah. I had a rough I had a rough weekend. This is due midnight online. You know what? What do I gotta do to get a C? <laughs> <laughs> right? What do I gotta do? What's what's the minimum? But because it's a linear process, mm-hmm. you know if I do this, this is going to be the outcome. What I see a lot of times, and it's just a cautionary tale, is not only new clinicians, but but um, more experienced clinicians who are learning to use um, evidence, is they automatically take a linear approach. Mm. If I do this, this is the outcome I expect. And if you want people to buy into the evidence, and they're doing it, and they're not getting the same results, you will see an abandonment of that evidence. And so... What's the real reason is because as clinicians, we don't think in a linear way. We are heuristic thinkers. We we look at, a, at, at the patient. We go through the same process. But when it comes to what am I going to do now, here's my intervention. And the more experience you have, the more expertise you go, I got like 20 things I could do. I think this is the way to go. Halfway through, as you're doing your constant activity analysis, which never ends, you realize this isn't working the way I wanted it to. I have to make a decision. Do I go longer or do I make the change now? And then you make a change. You go, what's plan B? In over 20 years of practice, I have not once in my entire life had a treatment session go as I planned it. Yeah. And so even though it hasn't gone as I planned it, it's because that's not how practice works. It's very different than controlling the variables. You already know. As a clinician, you can't control those variables. They're there. You can't get rid of them. You can't account for them. <laughs> no. You have no. nothing but confounding factors. Everything is going to confound what you do. So how do you manage that? That's why you can't think linearly. You have to think about how, how am I going to use yeah. the literature in a way that accounts for the variables, mm-hmm. not in a statistical manner, but in right. a real life, tangible, not a virtual kind of manner. Yeah. And it, it changes the way you think. So that's why you have to look at, does this generalize mm-hmm. to my patient who's sitting in front of me now? Right. And the only way you can do that is to try and use your clinical mm-hmm. reasoning. Does it make sense to right. use? Just because they've had a stroke, it's this kind of stroke. Mm-hmm. They have aphasia. The, this person, this study ruled out people with aphasia. So guess what? Technically because every research study I've said, or I've done when I was back in school, they said, well, you can't generalize that to that population. Well, as a clinician, I have to turn that back and say, well, I can't generalize that to my patient who's in front of me. (laughs) But I know that that's crap. The only reason they ruled out that for the study is so that they can control that factor and check it out. So my thing is, 
is communication going to be a barrier to this intervention? And that's where the clinician comes in and the researcher has to leave my head. And I have to go back to thinking very, very differently. Um, And that's the biggest struggle that young clinicians have um, is that change in thought process. If it's nothing else, it's you are not probably struggling as a student going out in your field work because you don't know what you're doing. (laughs) You're struggling. You're struggling because you have to think differently. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why you're seeing so many like simulations in schools now. You're seeing simulation centers. You're practicing things and experiencing failure and going, I got to think differently because you can't, you can't do it that way. You can't um, treat patients like a rubric. Yeah. You can't treat the literature like a rubric. A li- reading an article or a review, you can't use it as a rubric. It's a guide. It's a suggestion. What you have to do is learn to think about it in a way that's as a clinician. I can't. I'm not sure how else to put that. Yeah. No, it's so true, and I and I think it's really evident. I've had the opportunity to guest lecture a little bit and assist in labs uh, for current OT students, and it's really cool to see the progression from week one working with clients where they come in with a plan and that is plan A and there is no plan B through Z for what to do because that's what the literature said. But then as that clinical reasoning and confidence develops and this understanding of, you know, the literatures can be a launching point. It can be a reference point, but it's not the full picture, of course. And just like what you're saying, it involves that clinical reasoning, that knowledge that we have as occupational therapists and the way that we're hopefully taught to think in school. You know, I actually, I frequently say that occupational therapy education is about training people how to think a certain way, not about understanding certain interventions or even certain diagnoses that comes along with the territory. Um, But just how cool it is to see that progression as people really integrate all of what they know and how they think into, into really dynamic interventions that are so client centered, but you're right. If, if we're just looking at the literature, we're missing a huge portion of the picture Yeah, and we're not going to be super effective clinicians. The best thing you can do to help you change from that linear thought process process to thinking heuristically, thinking about multiple options at the same time is, and you've probably heard this in school and probably probably rolls their eyes, but um, being a reflective practitioner is not just some cheesy concept. Um, I think about every treatment I've done, not only during, you know, reflection and action kind of thing, but after every treatment session, I'm not taking 20 minutes to think about it. I'm just doing a real quick thought. But then I'm, sometimes I'm thinking as I'm preparing for the patient the next time as I look back and say, you know, what do I need to do different about that? That did, did mm-hmm. not go as I thought it did, or maybe it did, and it's time to make it more difficult. That yeah. teaches me to, to then think differently, to, to start, uh, you know, I, I'm getting, um, uh, I'm just going to say it anyways, mm-hmm. is divergent thought process. It makes you think more than one route. So I can think of two options versus mm-hmm. one. The more that you do that, the more that you're going to come in the next day and all of a sudden you've got 10 options because you've thought about it. You've also experienced it. And you say that might've happened there. That might've worked there. I'm going to, I'm going to weigh my options now. And you can do that in, in, in the heat of the moment. And and that only comes through practice. So, you know, if, if, if a listener is, is a Mm -hmm. a new practitioner or a student going on a field work, don't feel bad if you feel a little bit lost. It's because you have to learn to think differently. You know what you, you, you passed. <laughs> you wouldn't be on field work if they didn't feel that you knew what you right. needed to know to get there. Now you have to learn how to apply it, but you have to learn to apply it in a lot of different ways. And that's where 
hopefully the clinician that you're you're working with as a, your fieldwork educator um, can help guide you in that. So if you come in to work every day and you've got three or four options, yeah. this is what I'm thinking. First of all, you're the that that clinician's going to go, oh, they're prepared, and B, they've got a backup plan, and you know you've got something to fall back on. The other part about to help you reflect in practice is to be honest with you, everybody, you know, will go, oh, we learned so many frames of reference and, and theories and models. And I use, I use mm -hmm. a model every day with every patient. Right. I don't think about it as a model, but when you're doing your activity analysis, for me, my, my biggest thing that I tell students is PEO will save your life <laughs> because yeah. we all look back to that patient. The first time something goes wrong, you're like, I have no idea what I'm going to do now. Mm -hmm. But if you kick back and rely on that, that, that model, and I just use PEO because it's quick and simple, yeah. whatever model works for anybody that, that fits with the way that they think, the first thing I do is, okay, so this didn't go right. So I need to look at the person. Is it something about the way I have them set up or that mm -hmm. they're interacting? Am I getting what I want about them? If it's not, then I change something. Well, is it the activity, the occupation that I'm doing? Did I pick it in the wrong way? Or is it the right thing? I've got them in the right position, but I don't have the environment set up the okay. way that it's going to allow them to be successful. You know what? What if I throw them in a mobile arm support and take away the gravity and allow them to move in a gravity-reduced way? All of a sudden, I've got a new treatment option mm -hmm. because I reflected in practice using a model. And I tell students, and it works every single time, is if you feel like your clinical instructor is looking at you going, oh, what are they going to do now? The best thing to go is PEO. I got two options here. This is what I'm thinking. I'm going to choose this. What do you think? The next thing you know, they're going to go good head on their shoulders. They're thinking they're not stuck. Using the models, whatever works for you and reflecting in practice mm -hmm. will get you out of so many situations. Yeah. And that also at the same time teaches you not to think linearly. That's listen to your instructors in, in school, yeah. all those things. And I'm speaking from more than 20 years of looking back and I, I took it for granted and I wish I did it early in practice. Those things are there. You just don't know how to use them. They're not there just as a base education. They help you actually mm -hmm. learn to think differently. So, but it's, it's like looking at a piece of technology going, how can I break the rules? Break the rules with, you know, models mm -hmm. of practice and things like that. How can I use this to, to help me in this situation? And I know that was really long-winded, so. No, that was, no, wonderful. Actually, while you were talking, I was picturing, there's a video that, we're, that you're featured in by University of Michigan, and um, I'm going to post a link for this on the resource blog on otncork.com so people can watch it. Okay. But it shows kind of a, a bit of a montage of a few different patients who were participating in the computer therapy lab. And I was just imagining that and thinking, anyone who, who thinks they know what gaming looks like should watch this video because gaming can look, or use of, of technologies in, in rehabilitation can look so different. And again, I'll post this video because I think it's really cool to watch, but the way you use different switches and positioning and environmental supports and different screens and different types of technologies, different activities, different apps, everything that you're doing to change the environment or the occupation is making that is making that experience so much more meaningful for that patient and really providing them the supports they need to be successful. And that's what this is all about, right? Yeah. Is helping them return to what they want and need to do and giving the supports they need or giving the right challenge. We talked about flow a couple of times yep. already. Um, 
But I'm just seeing that so much just from that brief little video of your lab. I see that that's what you're doing. Um, can you kind of expand a little bit more about what maybe a typical day in your lab looks like with all of those adaptations, modifications, that, that process you're going through to adapt your sessions? Honestly, it is different every day. There are some days where it's similar, but I, I, I can't think of a d day that's the same. So whether, mm -hmm. so I'll, I guess I could, I'll give you examples. Like um, there are still therapists out there, both OTs and PTs, um, who divide the body into functional zones, upper body, the arms, OT does, PT does the legs. <laughs> they both kind of do the trunk for the purposes of what they're doing, which is silliness because yeah. people need to put their socks and shoes on, right? So, mm -hmm. um, I actually have, um, I, I see patients in the OT computer therapy lab who are referred both by OT and PT to mm -hmm. work on goals. I work on them in the context of, of a particular goal for OT, but I'll give you an example of how to think outside the silo, think outside the box is I had a, um, a patient that I was seeing, uh, for OT goals who had a cerebellar stroke um, and we're working on some ataxic strategies. And then the PT said, you know, I'm just having the hardest time. Every time we're working on ambulation and we start to take steps, he goes not only ataxic, but he gets an extensor um, tone yeah. that kicks in. And I said, well, bring him in and we'll try a couple things. And she brought him in and we just, as we analyzed it and we kind of went through the PEO process, I just didn't call it that as we talked it out loud. Um, and we really focused on what they were doing. She realized, um, and I both realized at the same time is that anytime he was trying to step, he wasn't initiating his weight mm. shift sufficiently. And so when he would lift his foot to advance and, and go into swing to, to, to push off and step, um, he wasn't forward far enough and he wasn't lateral away from the side with his weight shift enough to lift. And so every time he lifted his foot, he was falling and it was more of a protective extension okay. response. So what does that have to do with the computer therapy lab? She said, well, is there a way that you can help mm. him learn that component of it? And then we can use it when I, I see him afterwards. So she would schedule him in the lab and this is where I break rules. That's one of the things that I love about the computer therapy lab is I break <laughs> rules all day long. I don't use assistive technology the way it's supposed to be. Um, so um, the, we used a game that didn't require any kind of time. There was no constraint or pressure. Mm -hmm. It was just something that would give him a lot of repetition and time to do what he wanted to do and move the way he needed to move. So I put a switch where he had to, before, um, I'll, I'll start from the bottom up. I put a four inch platform on the floor put a switch on it that acted as a left click for a, a game. A very simple one, one switch solution. And that was for him to lift his foot, step on the switch and bring his foot back down. So in order to do that, mm -hmm. simulating that part of the, 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 the swing phase, he had to shift enough weight to the right. And then he had to also shift forward enough to bring his pelvis close enough so that he wasn't on his heels. He was more midfoot stance. And then he could lift his foot up without, with with more control without a spastic response and he could step on it and come back down but he couldn't do that without me telling him every time so this is where i break more rules <laughs> i go well i have a switch tester i have something all it, it it's only function in life is to make a beep when i push a button to let me know that that switch works it's all its job is but i use it as an auditory feedback mm -hmm. 
and there's two spots I could use it for both switches. He had to first we leaned against the table so he was forward far enough. He had to shift his weight until he heard the beep. Mm -hmm. So he got the biofeedback. Yeah. Once he heard the beep, he knew he shifted far enough and he could step up and hit it and come down. And he would do, he did that for a couple hundred repetitions that session. Oh. And then he went to PT and she said, wow, he's, he's much better, but there's still a couple of issues. So one time's obviously not gonna do it, but over the course of three or four days, all of a sudden he started getting it. She said, okay, now he's got it, but you know, doing it, in the parallel bars is one thing when we're trying to do it with the walker, it all falls apart because he's really thinking about how do I use this walker to walk? All I did was I took that, that switch tester and mounted it to his walker, oh. mounted a switch to where he, and gave him one target. He had to shift to the right and shift forward to hit the target. And he couldn't step until he heard the beep, just like he did mm. in the computer therapy lab playing the game. But now what he's doing it functionally walking. And she's like, holy crap, I can't believe he's doing it. It wasn't anything special. It was just a target for him to hit before he could lift his foot. So we further simplified it from the game. He had no cognitive component of it. But then you take the technology and make it a part of the functional training that PT did. I was actually doing it because he did have a goal um, that I could link and that he wanted to work on standing mm -hmm. ADLs because he's going to do it anyway. And he said, that I would like to do it safer from putting his pants on, but also um, standing in the shower. So that's kind of the approach we took why he was doing it there, mm. but we also connected it to the functional mobility component. And what it helped with the physical therapist was to be able to then make that functional training connection to the ambulation. Amazing. Uh, that is so cool. And, and something that sticks out to me is that you're using switches, which most clinics have access to, right? Yep. A basic switch is not an expensive piece of technology these days, right? You still have to have an interface, which on the cheap end is, is like 60 bucks. Okay. So you're talking already a hundred, hundred bucks, but yeah. And then amount is another hundred to 200 bucks, depending on where you buy it from. But oh. even the simplest technology like that for that use was still several hundred dollars. Technology is not cheap. That's the hard part. Mm. So then the key is um, how can you get access to switches more cheaply? We've already talked about the solution earlier. Yeah. You can 3d print a switch, buy a bunch of internal, um, tactile switches for pennies, 3D print a switch, put it in there, solder a, a mono switch wire, and you can make a switch for about two bucks, maybe three. I like that option. That sounds more like within the budget. Yeah. So that, that's what I'm saying. So as a, as a clinician, as a clinician, if you have access to those, yes, you still have to get a, you know, at a minimum, you know, 500 to a thousand dollars for a basic um, 3D printer. It, it only costs pennies to make. You, you can design it the way that you want, print it off, and if it breaks, you fix it, <laughs> you know, and it's a lot, a lot less expensive. Now, if it's for someone to use long term, you're going to want them to purchase mm -hmm. um, something commercially available. For use in the clinic, that is an inexpensive solution. Yeah. And, and, and that's something that, you know, our profession is only getting more involved in, but we should have been involved in more years ago. That's that anticipating, thinking about using technologies in ways that it's not necessarily intended to be used. Yeah, that's that's a really cool area too for people listening who who kind of want to explore this more. I think that's an area that's certainly not talked about in in OT school or anything like that, um, or even in practice. But it could be an area to explore further. Even that three D printing idea, something that you know that OTs could have a role in that. Mm -hmm. I think about a couple other barriers. We kind of mentioned the financial piece that technology is expensive, but 
I'd love to throw some barriers at you if that's okay and see if you can kind of help me to confirm or debunk them. Uh, some of these barriers are things I've heard other clinicians say, and I'm curious if you have solutions to kind of overcome them in practice for people who want to start incorporating more higher tech solutions and interventions. Sure. So one factor I've heard is the time, time of learning, time of setting up these interventions. Um, yeah, just kind of the whole learning curve and the amount of time it takes to just prepare for a session. What do you think about that? Um, it depends. That's like my favorite answer. It always depends. It depends on the patient, what their goal is, um, what technology I have available to me. Um, but you have to keep in mind, my on my schedule, I, I see patients back to back to back. They're not my patients. I'm not always familiar with them. Or once I am familiar with them, I already kind of know what we're doing and I can set things up ahead of time. Mm. For the majority of my treatment interventions, it, it, it takes a couple of minutes at most. And usually the first time I, I, I work with a patient, mm. um, we kind of go through the, the, a brief, really quick occupational profile and goal setting. And I let them select what goal they want to work on, what's important to them. And then we talk about a real quick interest or an activity that, that they either want to do or are willing to try and do some leisure exploration with it. Once we decide that, then it really does take me probably at most two minutes to three minutes, depending on how yeah. far down the rabbit hole I want to go. If I'm going to use bilateral mobile arm supports, a joystick on one side, a roller two joystick on the other side, mm -hmm. and three or four switches, that's going to take me a little longer. But then it's about okay. how you set it up. What do I need to do minimally to get them started so they're engaged and working on part of the goal while I'm setting up the rest of all those things? And so, again, it gets into the clinical reasoning and prioritizing your treatment is you don't have to have everything set up and then start. What do I need to minimally do to get them started and engaged? And th then it's just another way you're going to grade it. Okay, now we're going we're gonna to add this to it. We're going to add this to it. We're going to add this to it. And it's just another form of grading. Um, and it's about using grading in a, do a way that's different. So depending on the technology, if um, I'll give you a great example of technology fails, <laughs> um, my, my, biggest, my biggest pet peeve in technology and therapeutic use of technology is use of tablets and iPads. Mm. Um, we have several in the, in, the, in the lab that people come in and say, hey, can I use the iPad? And I'm like, yeah, sure. What are you going to do? Well, um, I'm looking to do the grab the the iPad to to um, work on this cognitive thing because it's going to do this. I'm like, okay. And so my biggest pet peeve is here's an app. This app it does this. This app does this, and this app does that. Within five to ten minutes, guess what? They're returning it because you know what they say. It didn't do what I thought it was going to do. I'm like, well, that's because that's not the the therapy. That's just your tool. What is it you wanted to do? What was the cognitive strategy that you were going for? If you were working on fine motor and you wanted to work on holding a pen, did you use a stylus or did you use pinch swiping on the, the screen? You know, sliding, which is, is, it's not a bad idea because as soon as you put two fingers on the screen, you get more stability and you can teach the movement pattern. But then did you also then transition to a stylus or to moving to a piece of paper or to a fork that had to use that pattern? I said, it's just what is it that you're trying to do? The technology is just a tool. Yeah. If you are expecting an app to do your therapy, put it back yeah. because that's not what it does. You're doing an activity analysis. What you're telling me is, according to your activity analysis, that activity, uh, that app 
requires this, this kind of uh, performance component to do. That's what you're telling me. The app ad doesn't actually train their brain. Right. You, you help them train their brain. They're going to train their brain themselves. You are providing intervention. The, the tablet is just a tool. But as soon as I, I see somebody saying, well, I'm going to use this app because it's going to do this, either they're trying to get their notes done <laughs> or, or uh, they aren't really sure. They're expecting something to happen that's not happening mm-hmm. and they bring it back. And that's because they didn't fully clinically reason how to do that. Yeah, that's actually so interesting you bring that up because I was reading an article the other day. I think it was with a population of people with MS, but don't quote me on that. I'm going to try to find it and post it. However, in this study, they used a mobile-based application, kind of like what you're talking about now, where maybe there's some swiping involved. And they, they thought that it would improve fine motor skills. And at the end of the study, it was so cool. The researchers acknowledged kind of the only thing this improved was their ability to swipe on this game. Correct. And so that really opened my eyes to that. Well, that's task-specific training right there. That's task-specific training. If your goal was to teach them how to use that and use that successfully, yeah. Goal met, yeah. (laughs) So that's that's the other thing is is there's a, you know, when you're talking about task specificity with with neuroplasticity, you're going to get what you're, you're, you're going for. The biggest limitation in the computer therapy lab, and it's being realistic, is yeah, I do all these things to toward a goal, but nothing I do in the lab is going to teach a person to put their shirt on. Nothing I do in the lab is going to teach them to feed themselves. Nothing I do in the lab is going to teach someone to use a walker to mm-hmm. walk if they have a taxic gait. PT is working on the functional strategy. The only way you can do all those things is what? To do yeah. them. Yeah. And that's where the, the lab and technology and using an iPad or whatever is only building capacity. It doesn't Mm -hmm. generalize. Generalization occurs because you take the strategy or the intervention or the treatment and you apply it in a functional real world way and teach them how to use it in multiple different contexts and different situations. That's how generalization occurs. Now, I know we've we've been talking forever and I could probably talk with you for another four hours if if we had the time. A couple of things I want to touch on though, and this talks about the task specific training. I was reading something, I think it was an interview you did probably years ago. And you talked about how using gaming and virtual reality helped toilet training. And I want to know more about that because I didn't quite get the full picture from what I was reading and it, it was suspenseful. So can you tell us what, you know, can you please tell me a little more about, about that patient's goals and how you help them reach them? <laughs> mm-hmm. So again, just building capacity. And, and so it's not just that one patient that I was talking about, but, but several, mm-hmm. it, it's how you approach everything. So when we talk about, when I, when I, meet the person first, you know, I've already talked to the therapist, they fill out a little referral and tell me kind of what the issues are that they're working on. Um, Mm -hmm. I already know kind of what they want to do, but I'll just have them quickly do a simulation, you know, keep it closed. I'm like, you're having trouble wiping your backside from your view. I already know you're talking to your therapist. They tell me what you're having difficulty with. What's, what's your trouble? Well, in in this particular case that you read that article, um, they were having trouble. They could not reach posteriorly mm-hmm. past their, their ACEs to begin with, the, the anterior spinal yeah. iliac crest. So they, they, they couldn't reach back far enough. And so it's literally just, I'm just doing target practice. Mm. Think about it that way. And you're, they're learning a movement pattern. And how you place a switch will dictate how they problem solve how to move. And so I'm, right. I'm looking for them to be able to reach back sufficiently enough to wipe their backside. They can do it with their other arm. 
but they wanted to do it with their other arm. I, and I, I, I am a, a huge supporter of that, knowing my personal experience, what got me into OT. Look, yeah. I, you, as soon as I could do it with my right hand, even though I got quite adept at using my left hand, uh, I went back to my right, even though it was still a little bit harder. Whatever's meaningful, right? Um, so I respect that if that's what the patient wants to work on. Yeah. Right. And so I just start the target there. So they have to reach the screen, then they have to reach back and hit. We actually started with a mobile arm support. We moved away from that after they finally got, got back far enough. And we just kept moving the, the target. Mm. Then it got to the point where they couldn't f- see it. So they had to go by feel or they would look and try to, to locate it and find it and, and focus their attention more on it. But you have to think of it this way. Mm. They're, when they're doing the activity, they're not thinking about wiping their butt or getting their arm back far enough. All I'm doing is I am setting up what the rules of engagement are for this activity. You can play checkers with a checkerboard. You can play checkers with a mouse on a computer. You can also play checkers by touching the touch screen to move the cursor if you have the right software and reach back and hit a switch. They're playing checkers. All they have to do to play the game, I touch the checker that I want. I reach back and hit the switch that selects the checker. I put where I want it to move. I reach back Mm. and hit the switch that moves the checker. All they're thinking about is how do I play this game? I pick it, I click it, I pick it, I click it. And then my job is to make sure that they're moving the way that they need to move. And when is it time to change the challenge I keep them engaged in their just right Mm. challenge and I move the switch. But how you place the switch is also important too, using PEO. If say I place a, a switch in front of someone and it's vertical, they're going to want to reach out forward to it. But I can have that switch in the exact same place. But if I have the switch facing the floor, mm. they know they have to come under it and lift up. Their entire movement pattern changes because I changed the way that I put the switch. That's all I did as a therapist. I was a <laughs> switch placer replacer. That's all I did. Try putting that on your resume. <laughs> well, that's the key. Is, is you, you tap into how a person problem solves how to move. And 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 you have to believe and trust in how the brain and our, yeah. our, we as people operate. And once you understand that just by changing the environment changes the way that someone approaches moving. And so I'm constantly changing things. I'm constantly engaged in, in what they're doing because I'm trying to get them to do something different. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's, it's changing the switch and sometimes it's a cue that I give them. And sometimes I might have to use electrical stimulation while they're moving. And sometimes I might be use vibration. And sometimes I might have to increase their trunk stability. Um, and sometimes I'll have to use an auditory sound to prevent them from using maladaptive trunk movement to initiate their move. That is not a linear approach. I have to think about five or six different things that I'm trying to, uh, you know, accomplish while I'm doing yeah. hit the switch, which is not a complicated process. Pick <laughs> it and click it. That unfortunately boils down to my practice <laughs> in most situations is pick it and click it, which now that I'm looking at that is very humbling. Um, <laughs> not as cool as it sounds, uh, or maybe it's cooler than it sounds. It, yeah. I think that one, I think that one. <laughs> I don't know, but well, I just, I just literally reduced my practice to pick and click. Wow. That it's catchy. It's catchy. So you got that going for you. <laughs> it is catchy, but, Certainly doesn't sound special. I wouldn't document that <laughs> in your notes. No, no, I, I'm pretty sure I'm not going to document that. <laughs> OT used the picket and click it approach. Yeah, I think that we can work on that. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, right. Picket hey, and click it, it model. I don't think so. 
equal paths. So I'm thinking here, what you do in this computer therapy lab is is awesome. And I think you have access to so many cool technologies, which you said at the beginning is a result of, I'm sure, a lot of effort to acquire grant funding. So that in that way, it's sort of a high cost to, of entry in some ways. But I'm thinking about the, the practitioner who's working in a place that maybe has a low budget or just doesn't have the technologies readily available, but they're interested in this. They see the potential. They're hearing this talk. They're excited. What is the next step you'd recommend for somebody in that situation? What's that next thing they can do to progress towards being a practitioner that's, that's using all their tools to their advantage? You don't have to have a computer therapy lab. Um, the reason the computer therapy lab is expensive is because it has one mission, and that's using technology to as an adjunct to their regular therapy session. Um, that's my biggest beef with technology, and I use technology every day, is that, um, you know, robots are sexy. I mean, yeah. I'll say it. Robots are cool. They're sexy. But access to a robot is limited. If the rural clinic in a rural area, I always say rural Iowa, but there are plenty of rural areas <laughs> in Michigan. But when I say rural Iowa, everybody can understand what I'm saying. And I, it's not anything against Iowa. I'm from Michigan, for crying out loud. But if a clinic in rural Iowa uh, can't afford a robot, th then that means all those patients in that geographic area don't have access to a robot. So while it's cool and it's nice to have these robotic centers and you have specialized mm -hmm. centers with robotics, um, how many people does that affect? It less than a percent. So technology, until it becomes something that is affordable and accessible, doesn't make a difference. Most of what I do is low tech. Mm. I don't use any um, therapy VR programs, for instance. I don't have a program that was designed for VR therapy. I use just programs that are off the shelf because it's not the, it's not the VR that's the therapy. It's my clinical reasoning and the strategies that I'm using. Yeah. And we modify controllers all the time. So when you're talking about the cost, I would say start simple. The computer therapy lab, like I said earlier, started with a monitor on top of a file folder box mm. and a couple of switches and mounts, a couple of hundred bucks. Um, the cheapest, mm. easiest way to to do to get started, um, something called a Swifty, is a um, a switch interface. Um, it has several different options you can do, but um, primarily left click is the the main function you are going to use. Um, you would plug that mm. into a USB. You take a mono switch. You you can start with just one switch if you want, um, and that's your switch access. Then you would need something to um, position the switch. If you're not uh, doing ballistic movements or if you're not having somebody kick a switch or lift their leg for um, lifting their put to put their foot in their pants, um, then um, you don't have to get an expensive $250 um, universal, um, sw uh, sw uh, mm -hmm. universal switch mount. Um, so you could buy something off of Amazon. If it really is, you're just looking for a light touch, something that positions that switch somewhere that you want them to hit it in a way that achieves their goal. Yeah. To be able to mount it to something that allows them to put a switch in front of their mouth that they have to lift up and hit the switch. Um, 
that's as simple as you, you need to start with. So for less than a couple hundred dollars, you can do those things. If you want to bump up your game, yeah, you could spend a couple hundred dollars more and, and get some um, a couple more switches or get a, 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 a higher level kind of interface that allows you to do more. The, the biggest thing, if you're going to use uh, switch-based technologies for therapy, is you need um, a, a touchscreen driver that will allow you to move the cursor without um, performing a click function. And all touchscreens don't do, no, no touchscreen does that. Um, there are some, there's one maker that makes a, a software program that does that, but that's, it, it, it's a very expensive overlay okay. monitor. It's like $500 for just that monitor, not, not cost effective. However, there, um, there is a mouse program that um, I know a couple people use. Um, Aaron Mustin Fersh at Craig Hospital, um, Dr. Doug Rakoski at um, Loma Linda University in California. Uh, I, I honestly I can't remember the name of the, the program, but they just use a, um, a mouse software, a touchscreen software program where they basically what they do is set the switch to be perform a right click. And you so anytime they touch the screen, it thinks it's a right click. So it'll just move the cursor. Now, if they drag it, it'll obviously perform right function. But um, and you reprogram that to be the, the left click in a way. Um, so if people are interested in finding out how to do that, I would uh, recommend contacting either Aaron Mustin Fersh at Craig Hospital or Doug Rakoski at Loma Linda University, and they can kind of walk you through that process. I'm just lucky enough that um, I got a budget last year, finally, after 10 years. <laughs> so I was able to buy the new new screen overlays, and so um, cool. which simplifies things. So That's awesome. But it sounds like there are things people can be doing now before Absolutely. you know the 10 years before you are right the, the 10 years before you get Correct. a budget for it yeah. what can you do so that's really yeah. encouraging and i think gives people a starting point and like i said people can i mean my dms are open on twitter um and so yeah why don't we actually take this opportunity do you want to share your twitter handle with us so that we can contact you and our listeners can can join in the conversation sure um it's at Rob Ferguson underscore capital O T capitalized O T. Um, so that's R O B uh, F E R G U S O N underscore. And then in all caps O T. Great. That's helpful. And you have, you post a lot of really good resources to Twitter. So I think it's a really good follow up for people as well. If they want to mm-hmm. keep track of kind of what you're doing and you have a new platform coming out soon. It sounds like this later this month, you said for, for interacting Oh, well, not a platform. We're just, um, anybody can do it. Um, so basically we're just, um, connecting, uh, and if other hospitals are interested in, in, in doing the same thing, um, is getting our patients to play video games online, doing cooperative gaming. Um, and then we, um, use discord for communication. Um, we can also use, uh, video, um, if they want to see each other. Um, as long as both patients, and again, you'll have to go with what your facility or your organization allows for mm-hmm. HIPAA. Um, but the fact that the, um, that they're using um, uh, secure communication between themselves and they're giving themselves permission to, to talk, you're not going over mm-hmm. medical information, um, then, then that's typically okay. And, and they're just having the conversation and they're learning to build their community outside of their own area. And then our role 
if it's a therapeutic issue, um, I might make them play the hard way. <laughs> or typically what we're planning on doing it is really um, more of an assistive technology approach uh, is, is how do you do adapted gaming uh, or uh, a, a, a assistive uh, devices to, to game again? So it's more of an educational thing or sometimes just a recreational mm -hmm. thing. So um, we're collaborating with um, OT and TR working together to kind of um, get the patients together um, and uh, and do that from a social connection, but also um, as a, a leisure exploration and get back and either get back into gaming or to explore a new leisure option for when they leave the hospital. Yeah, that is so cool. And if people are interested in hurry, learning about that, I mean, they can, again, uh, they can either contact me or Aaron Mustin first and kind of get some of the, some thoughts about that, because I'm sure that they wouldn't have any problem teaming up with folks yeah. either. So why not make the network larger, right? If people doing this in, in rehab. Absolutely. And, and partnering with um, TR is a, a huge yeah. bonus. Um, and, and, getting comfortable with working outside your silo, you'll be able to accomplish so much more. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for talking with me. I feel like I've learned so much from this already. And Anytime. I know that the listeners will as well. Um, and thank you for just all the resources, which I will add to otncork.com so people can access what we've been talking about sure. pretty easily. Thank you for listening to this episode of OT Uncorked. For access to the resources mentioned and to add your voice to the conversation, visit the resource blog at otuncorked.com and leave a comment. If you enjoyed this episode, share OT Uncorked with a friend, leave a review, and hit the subscribe button. Keep listening to this episode for bonus content about the use of gaming in the SCI community. Thanks again for listening. Cheers! And the other thing that I uh, have started doing recently is um, if people are interested in kind of seeing what I do and how they can kind of maybe incorporate it where they're at, whether it's using VR or um, using technology, everyday technology in a therapeutic way. I've, I've done a couple of um, uh, video chats with, with uh, hospitals and just kind of show them a couple of things, show a couple of videos about how we use it. So because I, I think the videos are much better than anything I could type up, right? It's just seeing how you used it um, makes a bigger difference than anything else. Um, and it gives people ideas and ways they can re-engage their patients in a, in, a, in a novel way. Being able to have uh, patients with spinal cord injury, um, especially, you know, um, high tetraplegia and things like that, being able to communicate needs, wants, as well as the caregiver, family members, to be able to communicate effectively. When you're waiting for those uncomfortable situations to do that, it, it's very difficult. But what we find is like, um, if we use the Xbox adaptive controller and a racing wheel and get on the Xbox and do like uh, Forza driving game, um, where they're driving across England and we give, um, we use what's called co-piloting with Xbox, where um, the Xbox picks up the adaptive controller and a regular controller as one controller. So the caregiver can control gas and brake and the other person can do steering left and right, which means a corner's coming up. How are we going to manage the corner? 
And it usually starts out with screwing around with each other and you're going too fast. You're going to crash into it. And then they're like crashing on purpose. But then after a while, they want to get the turn down. They're talking about, all right, turns coming up. All right, go down. And, and I, and I, I reinforce the, the communication strategies that they're learning in the independent living class and that they're doing in, in things. Okay. In this situation, how are you going to communicate how you want to handle this curve so that you stay on the road? Who's going to lead that? Okay, I'm I'm driving or I'm steering, so I'm going to tell you what speed I want you to to enter at. You know, okay, 55 miles an hour for that kind of curve, too fast. So going at about 30 miles an hour, uh, those kinds of things, and talking. Okay, you're turning too fast for me, and then they learn to anticipate each other. And after a while, they don't even have to talk. They're like all of a sudden just starting working together without talking. And then you can tell them the next time you have a bowel accident, take the same approach. Take that same strategy you just used in an in a uncomfortable situation that you learned how to apply in a comfortable, fun way, but do it that way. Um, and so that that sometimes is a great way, adaptive gaming is sometimes a great way to kind of break that communication barrier and kind of get them to start doing it. Yeah. Yeah.